One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On the last episode of Guilt. Now, that was tough, actually. It was sort of like, oh, my God, you didn't, you've been going through all this and you haven't told us. Yeah, so he, yeah, he can you know, bottle things. He can bottle things. Well. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. Stephen was his best friend and he didn't tell him his brother was dying. Oh, it yeah. was a shock. He's finishing. He's seen something. There's an awful lot of ex-convicts out there that are his contractors. There's a lot of people moving around that mill. Um, a lot of shady things going on in that neck of the woods. He's seen something that he shouldn't have seen. He's had some pressure put on him. They've known that he's seen it. And either there's been a malicious, deliberate act to get rid of him, or there's been a roughing up of him, an altercation, and accidentally he's been killed. some people. Today we can officially announce that New Zealand Steel has cracked the code. On the 21st of June 2004, scientist Jim Donnelly vanished from his work at the Gladbrook Steel. From Brevity Studios in New Zealand, I'm Ryan Wolfe, and this is Guilt. In the last episode, we met Stephen Taylor, Jim's oldest and best friend, and learned a lot more about Jim's analytical nature, his fragile or odd mental state at the time of his disappearance, and touched on Stephen and Debbie's belief that the initial police investigation was inadequate. We've spent the first five episodes of this podcast slowly filling in the background of who Jim was as a man, and also covering in detail the events that led up to Jim's disappearance from the people that lived them, those closest to Jim. Now it's time to move into the second phase. It's time to visit the mill and learn more about the geography of the area, as well as speak to those who were actually there, people that knew Jim and were actively involved in the search. Because up until this point, we've only heard one side of the story. It's no secret that NZ Steel likes to keep its cards very close to its chest and has never spoken publicly with any media about Jim's disappearance. 
I've reached out to them, and while they declined to be involved in the podcast at this stage, they did offer this statement. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in your podcast series about Jim Donnelly. However, I must advise NZ Steel does not wish to participate. At the time of Jim's disappearance, police, mill staff, and other agencies under police direction undertook full searches of our site. The matter of the search was in the hands of the police. We assisted in every way practicable at the time and have continued to assist the police with their investigations over the years. There is nothing we could add to your podcast that is not already with the police. We understand the distress that Jim Donnelly's disappearance created for his family and friends, and our thoughts remain with them. I still hope that in time, I may have the opportunity to speak with an official representative of the Glenbrook Mill. But for now, I'll focus on what is arguably more important, and that's speaking to employees of the mill that worked with Jim Donnelly, and were involved in the subsequent search. Today, I'm on the road heading back to Waiuku, with two purposes in mind. The first is to physically visit the mill for the first time. I want to really get a feeling of the size of the mill itself, and also get a better understanding of the topography of the surrounding farmland and nearby river. But before I do that, I'm going to be making an important stop. I'm going to be meeting a man that personally worked with Jim, and recalls the search that followed. Brian, how are you? Is it Michael John or Michael? Brian Michael John. Michael John, nice yeah. to meet you. How are you? Today, I'm meeting Brian Michael John. Brian is a recently retired NZ steel worker. I meet him at his house and he greets me with a firm handshake you'd expect from someone six foot three. He's surprisingly young considering he's retired. He reached out to me after hearing I was investigating this case because, in his mind, Previous television documentaries have got it wrong when covering the case, and he believes it's time to put the record straight. Well, the, the secrets that everyone seems to think happened, as far as I'm concerned, never happened. <laughs> okay, well, why don't, we, um, why don't we go back and you just tell me um, name and what you used to do at the mill and when you finished working there. And... Oh, well, well, my name's Brian Meikle. John, I've worked at the mill since 1992. And I recently retired last year. Yeah, I was uh, worked my way up from um, a, a, a packer in the packing bay in the Cognor, um to working on the four high and the six high, and then finally in the UAS. So I've become a qualified quality operator in three different mills in the, in the Cognor. Um yeah, so, so that's sort of it's 20, I think I retired after 29 years and about four months. Brian epitomises the average mill worker that I said you're going to hear more about. Someone that speaks highly of NZ Steel as an employer that provided him with the opportunity to work hard, make good money and set up an early retirement. In this conversation, we spend a bit of time speaking about the operation of the rolling mills plant itself. This will be the only time in this podcast we go into depth into the actual operation of the mill. I'm going to include some of this as I feel it's important for you to at least have a basic understanding of how everything works, because it is relevant to this case. As you're hearing about all these different areas of the mill, I want you to think about the sheer scale of the operation, how complex it is, and how many different areas it's made up of. And, and at the time that Jim went missing, were you working in the rolling mill? Certainly farm? was. Yeah, it certainly was. I was a qualified operator on two mills at that stage. Um, you can't, I can't remember exactly when he showed up and how long he'd been gone. How long has he been missing for? 18 years. 18, jeez, yeah. Wow. Mm. Yeah, so I was a quality operator on both the four high and the six high mill. Um, basically, a quality operator means you can do everything. You can do the crane, you can do this um, different parts of the mill you've got your entry side loading coils on and taking uh, the pup coils off you've got the exit side which is starting to roll first passes and that and taking the coils off and banding them up and then you've got the pulpit that can control the mill itself after the first pass is done um, and uh, you've got Salomon's job um, back in those days, we had a cellarman's job where you'd go down to the cellars, make sure all the coolant was the right consistency, blah, 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 for rolling the steel. 
um, and that was on the two mills, the four high and the six high. Uh, the difference between the four high and the six high, the four high had four rolling rolls, the six high had six. That was the difference between those there. Um, and um, yeah, we had salmon in each mill. Uh, under the under the mill is a massive big area of cellars, which is exactly what it is. Um, there's two massive big tanks of coolant that uh, one's normally in operation, the other one's in various degrees of either needing to be changed or whatever. Uh, and there's a lot of tunnels and all that under there, cable tunnels and things like that that actually goes. They don't go for miles, they go for hundreds of metres. You know, they disappear. It's all the electrical tunnels and things like that. Each mill has a lot of those. Um, so that's sort of the overview of the of the of the uh, cold mill. <coughs> Coils come in one side, we roll them, we take them off the other, and we just carry on day to day, day to day, day to day, coil after coil after coil. So is the um, is the purpose of the rolling mill to sort of make the steel thinner? Yes, yes, yeah. You get a coil. Imagine I, I say to people, imagine a uh, roll of sellotape, yeah, but between four and a half mil thick and two point three mil thick. Uh, you put it on one side and the rolls squeeze down on it a certain amount and they just go backwards and forwards and due to a combination of the lubrication, uh, due to a combination of the um, the pressure that the rolls put on it uh, and the speed and the tensions from the mandrels, um, it allows the steel to get thinner and thinner and thinner. The tension keeps it narrow to the, to the right. Thick, uh, to the right width, I should say. Oh, so it doesn't just blow out. No, sideways. so it does, yeah, yeah. If you didn't have any tension, it would just be like trying to put um, dough through a, through two rollers. It would just squeeze out anywhere. That's the whole idea of the tension and the speed. It keeps it thing, and it just goes backwards and forwards until such time as you get to the almost just about the desired um, thickness of steel that you want. Um, on one particular mill, there's also another another uh, area called the UAS or the Uniflow Denealing System. Um, basically, what that is is I try and explain to people that don't understand. I said it's two ovens. Uh, you put coils into one oven, nine coils on a tray, um, and it's uh, basically you're cooking the steel yep. for up to anywhere from. Uh, 10 hours say up to 36 40 hours brings it up to a 10 sucks all the oxygen and all that out it sucks all the moisture out and then it just heats them right up and it's tempering them you, you basically yeah. annealing the steel so that yeah. when you roll it through the mill one more time it becomes a lot harder so you get your steel coil you put it on a tray you put it in the oven it sucks all the air out which is an important thing to remember sucks all the oxygen and all that out uh this is basic of course yeah um, then the gases heat up like a massive big barbecue type thing yeah. um, and it heats it all up inside. Uh, after a certain amount of time, um, those coils are then transferred through massive big doors, the internal doors, um, the intermediate doors, they get transferred into the cooling chamber and that cooling chamber is just basically fans with air going through to try and slowly bring them down yep. to, temp to, to, to a workable temperature. Yeah. Um, so basically the cooling side comes out first, the hot side gets transferred over, the massive big doors have to all be shut and kept shut, otherwise to keep the integrity of the steel. Um, so you've got uh, doors on either end and you've got two doors in the middle, they're called your intermediate doors. So the cooling chamber opens up, coils come out, they shut the cooling chamber, then they purge it, get all the oxygen out of it, yeah. they open up the inside doors. The hot tray comes across to the cold side, the internal door is shut and sealed. When that happens, you can open up the hot side and put the next lot of coils in. That goes down, shuts and seals, purges, done, and that, that's one cycle done, and away you go, round and round and round and round and round. Yeah. Uh, there's, there were three furnaces at the time operating when Jim Donnelly was there, um, and he came on to us as a production engineer from a different part of the steel mill area which oh, I'm not too sure exactly where that was I think he might have been over and um, uh, I'm not too sure where he came from. So just to quickly clarify the rolling mills plant is just one plant in the massive operation that is NZ Steel. It was in this plant that Jim Donnelly was working at the time of his disappearance. 
We know from Tracy's interview that Jim had moved around different areas of the mill. At this stage, I'm not aware of exactly which these were, but we can assume that Jim was at least reasonably familiar with most areas. If you're listening and you do have specific knowledge of working with Jim in different plants prior to him working in the rolling mills plant, please reach out to us anonymously at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com. Oh, okay, so that rolling mills wasn't where he started. No, no, not with us, no. no. He, okay. he came to us, so he came from somewhere else. I think he might have been in the technical side of stuff where uh, they test bits of steel and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but that was not my problem. Yeah. <laughs> so what was your role at the rolling mill, mills plant? Quality operator. Quality operator. Yeah, okay. yeah. I could op- operate two of the three mills. I could I could operate the four high and the six high, all positions, but I could not operate the UAS. That came after Jim had passed away, uh, passed, gone. Yeah. He'd been whatever. Yeah, yeah. Disappeared. Yeah. Disappeared. Yeah, yeah. 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 Same thing. Um, so what we have is we had um, production engineers, basically. Yeah. Is it the same thing as a process engineer? Yeah, that- yeah, same same sort of thing. It's a production engineer. They'd come down and they'd want to try different ways of doing this and different ways of doing that. And every production engineer would come and go and they'd end up having all the same things that they wanted to try. And we're like, we've already done this five years ago with the other production engineer <laughs> and two years since that. And it's just like, oh, well, right, but we'll just carry on. Doing it. They want trials done. Roll the steel this way, roll it that way, try this, try that. And you go, but we've already done that. You're not listening to us. <laughs> but anyway. so, so they're basically trying to get more efficiency. They are, out they of are. We're all trying to do the same thing. But, yeah, it's when, when you get production engineer after production engineer, you get bored shitless and it's just like, oh, my God, here we go again. Every guy comes up and thinks he's going to change the <laughs> yeah, world. Yeah, sort of yeah, yeah. And then we're after the mill crashes and we've got to clean it all up. And he goes, oh, oh, that was my fault and you buggers off. Yeah, it was yeah. like, well, you know. Do you want to help with cleanup? <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> they don't do that. No, no, bro, we don't do that. Well, you caused us to crash. Um, so anyway, Jim Donnelly came to us, and he was another um, another uh, production engineer. Yeah. At that stage, I could work on both mills, but I got uh, talking to Jim quite a lot uh, at the Four High, which is the main mill I sort of worked on um, at that time. Uh, we sort of clicked because... Uh, I had a child that was playing soccer a lot, and he had two kids, a boy and a girl, that were playing soccer. So we clicked on the sports side of things. Um, he was—he seemed to be quite intelligent, more intelligent than a lot of um, people. Uh, and um, so sometimes he was very hard. You couldn't have a lot of jokes with him and all that because he was up here and we were down there. Sort of thing. With the, he sort of didn't quite get around to shit stirring, as we called it, you know. So that was a, that was interesting in itself. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's how I sort of got to know to know Jim. He was a production engineer. He'd come down, he'd say good day, he'd talk to us about what he needed to do. We could either do it or not, or we try and explain to him. We'd all have meetings about sitting down and explaining what we thought was going to happen, and he would explain what he would like to try and get out of it. Then you give it a go and see what happens. It'll either work or it wouldn't. <laughs> How would you, um, if you're going to describe like Jim's sort of personality and his character, like what would you sort of? How would you describe that? He was quiet. Uh, didn't like to um, interact with a lot of people. He was sort of more like a loner. But that's because I'd say that's because of his intelligence and that. There's a lot of people that are quite intelligent, just don't want anything to do with anybody else. They prefer their own company, quite thing, and which was fine. Uh, once you got talking to him about some things that he he liked, he liked his sailing and stuff. Apparently, he did a lot of sailing. We found out. Um, well, that was cool. Talked to him about, oh, you're going out on the boat this weekend, or I think he sailed with a group of mates or something like that on different yachts in the Manic uh, Wider Matter. So uh, yeah, sort of talking about that. Oh, I'm not going out. They've got gales coming in this weekend or something like that. You know, whatever. But we didn't know him out of the. Yeah, it's only it's like a lot of things, you know. With the hours you work, you know a lot about the people you work with because you're with them for half a day, literally 12-hour shifts, 8-hour shifts, 12-hour shifts, whatever. But you don't really know a lot of people outside of work, you know. Yeah. It's those sorts of situations. So you wouldn't, not a lot of people knew him outside of work, I gather. Yeah. So that was the interesting thing. But anyway, hey, these, to us, he was a production engineer. He came down. Sometimes he was quiet. You'd sort of be saying, well, what do you want to do, Jim? Oh, well, um, could, could, could we? It's very polite. 
he'd ask us if we'd be able to do something. He wouldn't go, I want this done, I want that done. It was always very polite. So, yeah, yeah. And um, how would you say he was sort of accepted by other... Because, I mean, my understanding of the mill, it's very much a man's man's kind of a Mm. thing. Like, how did he fit into that mould? He had a job to do, so he did his job. Yep. Yeah. And then he went home. And that's kind well, of, we gather, you know. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Yeah, he yeah. sort of he, he'd come down. He'd ask us something about the mill. Um, he'd tell us he'd like to do something or whatever. Or how were we going? Because it was important for the production engineers to know why did we crash on a certain product, yeah. whether it had a chip in the edge of the steel or whether the weld was partially split or something like that, or whether we had an issue with something else. Um, what was the problem? Because that was his job. So he'd come down and he'd he'd quite happily chat about all that sort of stuff. Yep. And then bang, it was over, bang, he was gone till the yeah. next time you saw him. Yeah, not one for, so. he's not, not one for small talk. No, no, yeah. no, he's come down, this is what, bang, gone. Yeah. Would you say in Which some way, what? a lot of the production engineers are the same kind of breed as that? No, no, no. Oh, a no, lot of them not. would sit there and talk because they didn't want to go back upstairs <laughs> and do all the bloody paperwork and computer work that they had to do. So, yeah, no, it was, it was, I didn't have a problem with them. A lot of people didn't have a problem with them. Because he just came and did his business, did whatever he had to do and go. So would he service quite a wide area? So he would obviously the rolling mills, but then would he go to other areas as well? have no idea. Oh, you're not sure? But he was a production engineer in our area, so therefore he would be, he was sort of, they'd cut down production engineers, there used to be a couple of them, but he, they cut them down to one, to, to one, I think it was, and um, he would have had to do the UAS, the four high, the six high, and the pickle line. Yep. Right, and the pickle line was where they supposedly found these keys and stuff mm. like that. It's incredibly interesting hearing Brian, a person who didn't know Jim personally, speak about Jim's personality and character. I guess it's surprising in a way that it perfectly mirrors what I've heard from those that knew Jim closely. For Jim, work was work, nothing more. I asked Brian to take me back to the time of Jim's disappearance and what he can recall. And straight off the bat, he surprises me by saying that he actually spoke to Jim the morning of his disappearance. Did you work the same sort of I was roster go- as him? No, no. He was solely on day shift. Yeah. And, of course, being at the steel mill, you have rotating rosters. Yeah. So I was on rotating rosters. I just happened to um, catch him that morning, which I was – I had just had a, a basic talk with him. Um, we, we talked often about um, the kids' soccer, right, because he loved his kids – and his son was playing soccer and my daughter was playing soccer. Um, and we were talking about different competitions, blah, blah, blah. So we got talking about that. That's how we sort of bonded, maybe. Yeah. So were you talking about that that morning? Yeah, we are talking about whose games we were playing really? against. So he came past us and I was the second last person to sort see him. The last person got interviewed by the police and all he said to, to Jim, because he told me about it, he said, oh, um, all I said to Jim was, oh, good morning, Jim, how you going? As I walked off to the changing yeah, shift. It's certainly no bombshell, but Brian's name is nowhere to be found in any police timelines or any reports as someone that interacted with Jim that day. His is a completely new statement in the timeline. And if he was speaking to Jim that morning about their children's soccer... That would help us get a better understanding of Jim's frame of mind that morning. It would indicate someone who would appear to be functioning normally, thinking about the future. And while I can't say for sure, it wouldn't obviously point towards someone about to do something drastic. Investigating this case, I found a real reluctance, and in fact, a fair bit of pushback from former mill staff that don't want to speak about the case, and don't want anyone else speaking about it either. And it surprised me. I asked Brian why this might be. But a lot of people are really like, they just don't, they just, they just don't want to talk about it. And I mean, I guess that's fine. Well, yeah, a lot of people don't want to talk about it. Um, why do you think that is? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's just... We'll obviously be going into this a bit more in of depth. Of course we will. And, I, and I, think, I think you'll understand why when it comes on. Um there's still people working at the mill that don't want to talk to you about it. It's not because we got told to we got told to hush at the time, right? Because it was an ongoing investigation and no one knew what the hell was going on. Um, some people I, I get asked a lot because I've worked at the steel mill about the um, about oh do you know Jim Donnelly and all that? And I wish I 
charge them a dollar because I'd be a multi-millionaire. Um, I saw the documentary about it, and that's what a lot it upset a lot of us because there was a lot of half-truths yep. and there was some lies in there. That's why I needed to talk to you face-to-face yeah. because there are lies in there. Yeah. Um, when you say the documentary, well, as far, are you as, far to as we're concerned, there's, there's yeah. lies in there. There have been a number of different television pieces done over the years on Jim's case. In particular, there was a multiple part 2020 documentary in which Brian and others at the mill feel the truth was bent for the sake of good television. I can't personally account for the accuracy of the documentary, but regardless, it's meant that many at the mill have become averse to speaking to the media for fear of the truth being skewed in a way that they believe unfairly reflects the mill. We'll get to what Brian believes has been unfairly represented soon, but for now, I ask him to take me back to that Monday, the last time he saw Jim. Why don't we go Didn't back go then? Down well. Go back then. You you took me through. Um, you probably told said the story a million times. Go back to that morning. You said you spoke to him. And walk so, me through that day. And yeah, well, basically, we were on our way home to go to bed. <laughs> we yeah. finished shift, so I don't care. Don't know what happened that day. So I walked past Jim and said good day, and we started talking about um, what was happening that weekend. Because I was, I think, if I remember rightly, I might have been going on days off. Um, with the teams we were going to go play, whether it was home and away, whatever, it was just, you know, what's what's you up to this weekend, blah, blah, blah. This is yep. what's happening with my the yep. soccer team. He's told me what he's had doing, yep. and we went. Okay, I mean, so weekends to us are on our days off. Yeah, sorry, yeah, you when know, you say it's weekend. Not, it's not Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. You know, for many, many years, for 20, 29 years, my weekends were when my days are off. Yeah. So if, if, I, if, I finished on a, if I finished on a Monday morning, my days off were Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah. You know, that was my days off. So, yeah. Sorry, so, go back to what yep. you're saying. So, you saw him. So, I saw him and I just asked him, blah, blah, blah. And then I left. And then we came back to work. So, it might have been, I can't remember when it was, but we came back to work to find out he was missing. And we, we came in that morning and there was a full up meeting of all our area, pickle line, because we'd all been off. You see, we'd all been off from days off. Yeah. So we came back in to find that, oh, hang on, you know, management are calling a meeting, blah, blah, blah. And they informed us that this is what had happened, that, that he'd gone missing. Um, they told us that uh, his hat and his keys and some cards or something were found by an acid um, bath yeah. in the pickle line. Uh, and went, oh, yeah, fair enough, blah, blah, blah. Now, I didn't work in the pickle line, but you talk to people that are over there. And before Jim came along, these baths that they have, they run the strip through the mill, through their mill, and it goes up and down through different baths, rinsing the rinsing stuff off the strip and then um, pickling it, etc., and rinsing it off with, with different solutions. The acid solution that we were, they were saying that these items of clothes uh, items were found next to as far as I know was very diluted Mm. it would never have been able to decompose a body Mm. or anything like that in the time that they drained it yeah if you know what I mean Yeah, yeah so when we come back to work we got told to not saying to anybody, but we needed to go and search the place. So you've got to remember that each mill had approximately five or six operators at the time. All right. So, and two shifts going. Three, it might have been three shifts. When you say the mill, sorry, just to clarify, that's running the four high and the six high yeah, and, yeah, and the pickle yeah, line yeah, and stuff. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, so, so there's four crew, uh, four crews on each mill, because we we're on eight-hour shifts, I believe, in back those days. Um, so basically, what happened was we got told, right, oh, shut the mill down. This is on our mill. Let's say, it's, let's say it's the four high mill. Six high did the same thing. Pickle line did the same thing. Shut the mills down. So we're talking no production for a whole shift. Yeah. Right. So, right, oh. You buddy up, two years go together. We basically pulled the mill apart, even though we were told that his stuff was found in the pickle line. 
we had to go searching for this person that could have been anywhere. I'm only talking about the cold mill area. I'm not talking about the, rest the melters or anything like that, but it is understood that they shut down as well yeah. because no one knows where anybody is. So you, you just look at everything. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You think? So we buddied up and we spent, a person was up in the crane, they went up on all the crane rails. And there's the other crane driver as well. They went up on all the crane rails and inspected all the cranes. We inspected the mill. We took the rolls out. We went under, down into the sumps, which he would never have gone into anyway because the mills would have been rolling for 24 hours. There's no way someone's going to slip down there and you not know about it. Yeah. Um, then we went down into the, uh, down into the cellars. Um, we drained all the tanks. So all the coolant tanks, you can't put them anywhere. So all that... Fl- you know, 35,000 litres of, of rolling fluids gone down the drains. Yep. It's not down the drains, it's gone to the... Um, Somewhere it gets treated. All yeah, the to, the, to the treatment plant. So it's not just down the drain. I shouldn't, <laughs> yeah. have, shouldn't yeah. have said that, but it gets taken, sent yeah. to the treatment plant. Basically, it gets to the waste, waste treatment plant. Um, so that's two big tanks. And then you talk about the 6 eye that's got similar two tanks, and you talk about all the tanks in the pickle line that all got drained. Yeah. Right, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of lost production and stuff like that. Everything had to be checked and everybody. So we checked all the tunnels as well. We had to get torches and all that. We had to buddy systems. And when, when you're six foot three tall, a couple of years, and you're trying to go through a tunnel that's like, you know, three feet wide by, by, by three feet high, you're on hands and knees and, and you don't know what you're going to find. It started off as a joke and then it got rather scary because what happened was... We weren't asked to do it just once. It wasn't just one crew doing this. It wasn't just the day shift searching for Jim. Day shift went off, handed over to night shift, who then buddied up and did the exact same inspection that the day shift guys done. Then we came in the next day and did it again. And this is what people forget or don't want to say. In the documentary, it was basically... Um, came across that the steel mill was saying the right things but doing nothing. The actual fact was for approximately two to four days, I know for a fact that on the day shift we arrived, all the crews searched from everywhere. We dropped tanks, we did everything, we pulled rolls, we did absolutely everything. And I know that the night shift came in and did exactly the same. And we come in on day shift, and then we went. We're, we're told to go out. Still no running. The mills aren't running. Just go out and start searching the grounds. Now, where our area sort of was to search was if you, if you go out the back, we ended up going towards the estuary where the, where the pine trees and all that were, and we ended up going right down the back to the estuary down there. By that stage, uh, his wife Tracy and the kids had come on site and been given from what I gather, full access, from what I gather, um, which is what we're told from upper management. Uh, And we'd gone down there, even at night time, we'd done a night shift, started at uh, probably four to midnight, if it was eight hours, shifts would have been four to midnight, Um, and then midnight to late. One of the night shifts we did, um, we had to go down with torches, and we were in the, yeah, you got a bunch of men going down there, and we're, we're trying to spot 
Can I just say quickly, yep. was that an eerie oh, feeling? It the mill's closed. Was, and, was, and it's not operating like no, normal. The whole and you're place all going around with torches. Yeah, calling in, around trees and stuff. And she'd gone down with the kids and it was it was to me it was upsetting. Uh the fact that there were notes in little Ziploc plastic bags with food on it from the kids saying, Daddy, please come home, get in touch. And they were on every fifth or sixth tree that you came to and, and things like that. Um we started off thinking, to be honest, it was a little bit funny, because by this stage, whatever happened, it would be if he if he was still alive, he'd have been well and truly gone. Yeah, but um, disappeared somewhere. Um, but we thought it was a bit funny. Then the further you got on, it got quite upsetting because the the notes got more personal from the kids and from Tracy and things like that. You see, so it got more personal and it got really quite upsetting actually. But yeah, walking through through some of those areas that you've never actually been down to, because you come to work, you go to here and you go home. You don't go wandering around. You're not allowed to, you know. Type thing. So, as far as I know, the other plants did the same thing. Now, what they also did in our area was with the furnaces. You've got to remember there were three um, massive big furnaces going, um, and. There's nine coils on each tray, so there's 18 in a furnace, so there's 27 coils, and they shut those furnaces down. Now, that's thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. that they've basically stuffed up the coils. Um, they tried to fix them up later on, but that's not the point. They shut the furnaces down, they opened up all the doors, they pulled all the trays out, right, took the whole lot out, completely open up all the doors, everything, they were going in there um, with torches and all that, three and four people at a time. Just to give an idea, how big is a coil and a furnace? I can only imagine how unusual this situation must have been for Millstaff, used to working a plant with strict rules specifically not to wander around, and now being told that's exactly what they need to do, in tunnels at night with torches, and with the deafening silence of what would normally be an extremely loud mill. One note here is that from my understanding, although there were three furnaces, at the time of Jim's disappearance, only one happened to be operating. Well, it coils up to 14, between anywhere from, say, 5 tonne up to 17 tonne. So you're talking about the size of the table yeah. round on its end. So it's probably like sort of 6 feet kind of thing, roughly. Like a, the, height, uh, the size of a man. But oh, then, no, no, no. Probably, probably 4 or 5 feet. Yeah. But yeah. obviously bloody heavy. Oh, they are, yeah, yeah, anywhere from 5 tonnes to 17, 18 tonnes. So this furnace, then, I assume it's big enough to walk in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. huge. Yeah, they're yeah. huge. They're yeah. huge. Yeah. So um, that'd sort of be, safe, say, from the... They'd probably be, say, from that wall, at a guess, to about here would be one chamber. Brian measures out on the wall a distance of approximately 6 to 8 metres. Yeah, and then bang, 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 they and stack you have nine coils on the, on the tray, yep. that sort of stuff. Um, so they open that up. So they open up coils. both sides and the, and the intermediate doors. The theory that he might have got in there while we were charging a tray. Had that happened, um, there would have been just dust in there yep. because it sucks all the oxygen and all the moisture out. And what are you made of? Yeah, yeah, you've just been oxygen and moisture. So you just you just shovel up. We did one day put a um, put a piece of wood in there just to see what would happen. Just to see what would happen, and it went through the whole process. Came out, <laughs> and they went over it with a magnet, and just just the movement of the air of the mag that the magnet made the the, the big piece of wood just went like that wow. when it came out. It was absolutely spectacular to see. Yeah, everyone come around to watch it. Oh, there's that piece of wood. It's these furnaces that have been considered by many that are unfamiliar with the mill as the place Jim took his own life. But as we discussed with Dave Glossop, to enter one of the furnaces is virtually impossible. And when the furnace was opened, it was checked thoroughly to see if any trace human remains were present, which they weren't. Well, wow. That, yeah, it was freaky ass. It's just like, wow, man, yeah, it's, it's yeah. You, you never survive that. I hated working over there. I really did. I hated working over there. Why is that? Because to me it was, I had this thing in my mind, I could never get over it, that it's just like Auschwitz. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. You know, your coils, your bodies go in, they get friggin' burnt, and that's it. Yeah. You know, and that I, I, even to this day I hated working over there. 
Yeah. I would have if I had to, but I just, just didn't like it. So just to clarify, so there's obviously some like window hypothetically someone could get in, but even if he did, you'd find something at the end. Well, I don't know. I, I think being humans, you'd find dust, but he would never have been able to get in there. Yeah. Because what they did was they went back on the times and of, uh, and you've got to remember, it's monitored. It's got cameras everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. But you can't get into them unless the doors are open. Yeah. Do you understand? Yeah. So because they're sealed. They're hydraulically sealed. One person can't just go press a button and walk in. No, you can't. Work no, out. alarms would be going and everything. Yeah. But you, you, you can't. You can open them like that. But alarms would be going on all this, and yeah. it shows actually from the mill's point of view that's quite good. That it shows that even though they probably knew it's not possible, they yeah, still yeah, they, opened yeah, it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there were things that were said, and this is this is always always upset me. Yeah. Is that it came across like we didn't do anything? There was words, but nothing was really done. And and that's what upsets me because. I'm not worried about shutting the mills down. I'm not worried about the company losing all that hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions and millions of dollars, with lost production. That's not my concern. My concern is we're out there with torches. We're we're going under the mill in tunnels that we'd never go to normally. That was for the electrical guys and the mechanical engineers. They were the ones to go down the tunnels if there was an issue, but we had to go down there with torches. It's probably lucky that nothing happened to someone while they were trying exactly, to find yeah, it. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, I went into tunnels that I didn't even know existed. Seriously. It's a scary thought to think that an experienced mill operator with a decade experience as Brian had at the time would still be able to find places in this area of the mill that he didn't know existed. I decide it's time to ask Brian about the most important element of Jim's disappearance and that's the discovery of Jim's helmet and items found in the acid vat five days after his disappearance. The obvious question being, could they have been sitting there the whole time or would they have been picked up in the searches if they were? If you'd like to see pictures taken of Jim's hat and the items when they were found, you'll find these in this episode's companion post on my Instagram or our Facebook page. Are the vats down at ground level? No, no, they're quite up high. Yeah. They're up high. They're about, oh, I don't know, maybe two stories high, something like that. you got to climb up to them. Yeah, so that, so where, so my understanding of where the helmet was found, if that was up on a second floor yeah, could that have, have easily been missed well it, it could have but if you've got yeah this is a, this is a strange thing I, I can't say what happened on that side because I wasn't there yeah right uh, my only theory would be as as an operator that if we all got to do the same thing we all had to shut the mills down we all had to drain all the vats blah 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 when was that found? Was it found after? Five days after. Five days after. See, that's obviously planted there because by five days we'd searched, we'd gone past all our mills that the Uniflow annealing system had been completely shut down and opened up, all right? And on the hot side, you've got to let that cool down because that's like bloody uh, 800 degrees. Yeah. So you're not going to open the door and walk straight in there. Yeah. You know, so that had to be cooled down as well. The doors opened up, the heat just came out, then all the trays had to be manually taken out, and then they had to be searched. So we're talking not just maybe Sorry. in a ship, so we're talking quite a lot had to be done. So if the hat and all that had been found five days later, mm. then that's been put there. How confident would you be of that? Well, so you've got two options. If, one that it maybe got missed and one that it was put there. What percentage would if you they put? If they had gone and done exactly what we had to do, which was pull their mill apart, yeah. right? So that's the one assumption we're making is that they did a good job they, like you did. Yeah, and, and they weren't silly operators back in those days, Yeah, right? They're all, all, all um, good quality operators. They know their mill back to front, right? So if we, if we as four high and six high operators had if I if I had to go through with my crew two to three times and done the exact same thing that's three and a half days yeah and we're not the only crew that did that the oncoming crew did it then we came back on that next day and they and did the same thing so we did the same thing on the same mill yeah for let's say three times yeah right two days on a night shift so the pickle line's going to be doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. Right? We assume anyway. We assume. Yeah. But if we had to do it, then you can pretty well assume that everybody... Found we would have found it. You would have found it straight off. I hate making assumptions. So often, they lead to poor decisions 
and bad conclusions. But in this case, if we assume that the other areas of the Rolling Mills plant performed their searches as efficiently as in Brian's area, then as he said, it has to have been planted. As you'll see in the photos of Jim's helmet when it was found, although it's a bit elevated, it's not hidden. In fact, it's clearly visible. If the entire plant is not operational and all the operators are specifically looking for someone named Donnelly, it's seemingly impossible to fathom that the helmet could have been missed in the five days of searches. Remember, it has his name, Donnelly, printed on the front. And if we can go on what Brian says, these searches were extensive and were repeated multiple times over the same area. So if we know now that at least the helmet was placed there after the initial searches, what does this tell us? Well, there are only two options. The first, which to be honest seems fanciful, is to suggest that somehow Jim, without being seen, re-entered the area and placed the helmet. Or the second, that someone else did. Because the thing too is, I just came from a meeting with Dave Glossop, who's the detective that's worked on the case for the longest. Yep. He said that the helmet literally had Jim's name right on the front of it, mm. too. It wasn't like on the inside, it was literally yeah. like Donnelly yeah. written yeah, across we, the front. Yeah, we, we do a lot of that. You have it at the front. So or you have nicknames or something on the back or whatever. Let's say someone's throwing that shit in there to try and get rid of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. then they've gone and realised, fuck, the helmet won't fit. Yeah, I guess yeah. I'll just put it here. Yeah, okay. But to say that, you've got someone who's a production engineer who's highly clued up as Jim mm. Donnelly. Mm. You know, he's going to know. <laughs> that those acid baths and that yeah. are going to do jack shit unless they try to get rid of it. Well, there's other ways to get rid of plastic and stuff like that. You can burn it, you can, you know. But what I mean is, what if it was someone who didn't know? You know, like someone who's not familiar with... Well, then you'd have to wonder how they got in there. Well, that's... And then that's the that's the million-dollar question. Yeah. How would they get in there? This is the head-scratcher of this case. The reality is that someone placed the helmet there and the items in the vat, without being noticed, whether this was Jim or someone else. We know this. So it must be at least possible to move undetected. Although, there is one other possible scenario which can't be ruled out. What if it wasn't Jim or an outsider that placed the items? What if it was a person in uniform that was supposed to be there, that wouldn't have stood out. Due to the seeming impossibility of what's taken place, it's obvious that this is something I'm going to have to consider. Brian then mentions another interesting point, which has caused mill workers to scratch their heads, and is another common theory, and that's that Jim was taken out in an attempt to elicit possibly groundbreaking technology. Do you think someone could abduct someone or kill someone or whatever without anyone noticing and you know it starts to get pretty hard to imagine that happening yeah, and then getting yeah. rid of a body and but that also brings back to what that documentary said about why what was they're all going on about this the these um uh hushed up bloody um experiments or something oh. going on at the steel mill which was a load of rubbish that sounds like yeah. um i talked to um someone who was high up in one of the areas that all the secret squirrel stuff was supposed to be happening and you can't say anything and all this. And it, all it had to do with was was air knives going down onto a strip at a certain angle. Yeah. Uh, that's not hush up going to get killed for that. Yeah. You know? They like to speculate and they like to yeah. sensationalise It's like, things, well, eh? you know, okay, so you've got knives that have air coming out of them that, that blow on a certain angle to get stuff off a strip. Well, okay. I'm pretty sure there's other countries around the world that do the same thing. It's not going to be hush-hush secret squirrel stuff. But it came across in the documentary that it was, that, oh, you know, there was all these things that he was, um, or he could have been involved in or whatever. I can't see that happening at all. Yeah. I mean, we've got, you know, 15 guys on a bloody shift scratching their head going, well, what do we have here that someone else in the outside community would want to steal from us because it's you know yeah. high importance well nothing yeah you know the whole community of waiku pukakaui tuakau and all that that have family that working at the mill oh dad what are you doing today oh, i'm running this mill blah 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 it's no secret while brian was by his own admission 
not someone up in the offices that would know of every bit of groundbreaking technology. In his mind, this angle seemed like good TV fodder. Another common belief is that there is or was a large gang presence at the mill at the time of Jim's disappearance. I was interested to hear what Brian had to say on this. No, I've heard none of that. None of that. None no. of that, yeah. There's some I wouldn't be locked, wanted to be locked in a room because they're assholes. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's the thing, you know, it's, it's what, what you consider compared to what mm. I consider. I could be talking to, to you not knowing that you're a gang member affiliated, mm. you're, you're one of these sergeant-in-arms yeah. or something like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. And, and you come across as a perfectly nice gentleman like you are, mm. but you're not. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, what's what? You get your overalls on, That's everything's right. covered up, you can't see tattoos and things like that, and you come to work, a lot of people I work with, they came to work to work, do their job, leave me alone, they'll, they'll be sociable, they'll say hello, um, you have a laugh with them, but they just want to get on and do their job and go home after 12 hours or 8 hours, yeah. whatever it was, with all their fingers and toes, and yeah. everybody's safe. Mm. And that's what a lot of us, a lot, had done yeah. back in those days. We just came to work, did our job, all sociable, got on, yeah, Leave me alone. Back to your I'll life. go and do my job. It's no doubt that NZ Steel is a huge part of the culture in Waiuku and the surrounding areas, so I'm interested to know how Brian, retired at only 56, enjoyed his time at NZ Steel and how he rated them as an employer. How would you describe like working at the mill in general and the mill as an employer and stuff over the years? Um, it was very good. It was very good. Um, I'm never going to complain about it uh, with regards to... Um, it's paid for my house. You know, I've got I've got a house. I own my own house. Yep. Paid it off in uh, 23 years as opposed to 30 because of the overtime and that at the steel mill. Um, certain areas are getting paid get paid a lot more than others, and for obvious reasons. Um, obviously, the fishing plants don't get as paid as much as the melters and things like that for working conditions and blah blah blah. Um, it paid for everything for me. Put my daughter through school. It paid for trips. It paid for cars. It paid for house. It paid for you know everything. Tough paid for the savings and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I always always say to people that moan there, well, if you don't like it, go go work in the real world. Mm. As for an employer and all that, um, it's the hardest thing is before I was there, I worked shift work anyway for ten years, and that was really hard. Um, that was for 10 years, and then I did another nearly nearly 30 years there. So basically all my working life has been shift work. Mm. So that's the hardest part is the shift work. Uh, you're away from um, your family, you know, uh, uh, you got a baby, you don't hear them talk because you're at work. You don't see their first steps because you're at work. You miss um, sports games, blah, 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 that sort of stuff, parties. You can't go to parties on the weekends because you're on night shift or something like that, you know. There's a lot of pros and cons to, 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 to the place with respect to that. But at the end of the day, I've got what I've got because I had a solid job there. Yeah. Kept my nose clean, did what I was told to do, and didn't cause too much trouble. I retired at 56. Mm, that's amazing. Um, it is. Um, been through... Uh, um, been through marriage and divorce and that sort of stuff, which happens a lot out at the steel mill because of the shift work and because of other issues. Um, So I've gone through the gamut of quite a lot of things that normally happen to shift workers and stuff like that. Um, Found a lovely lady now and we're looking for the future. But, um, yeah, the steel mill itself, worked for a big company like that, yeah, you get, you know, looked after pretty well. Yeah, good perks. uh, Yeah, well, yeah. Not a lot of perks, I suppose, depending where you where you work and things like that. But you know, as I say, it's paid for my house, it's paid for education, it's paid for cars, it's paid for holidays. You can't argue that. Yeah. You know, you can't argue that. I wrap up my interview with Brian and jump in my car and make my way the short distance from Brian's Twaiuku, where I grab a sub and debrief on what I've heard. I've just grabbed myself a subway. Um, of course, thanks to COVID restrictions, you can't eat inside, apparently. Anyway, I just thought I'd debrief on what's happened this morning. You know, this case, I just go round in circles. And at one moment, you think that surely, you know, Jim's done something to himself. 
And then the next moment you speak to people like Brian, who says that, you know, the helmet can't have been missed. Can't have been. So it only leaves two options. Either Jim came back and put the helmet there himself, or someone else did. And if someone else did, well then foul play must be a part of this. This was a really, this really difficult case. The one thing with Brian, though, is that, you know, and he did say that we are making the assumption that the guys that were working the area of ring and roll number one did a search just as good as Brian and his team did around the corner. So, you know, we're assuming that. I do wonder if I can track down the actual people that were searching in that actual area. I think that's quite key. Okay, I've just come out to... I've done the turn-off to come and have a look at um, the steel mill. Never been out here before. I just wanted to sort of get my reaction for the first time I come out based on what I'm seeing around me. It's just farmland sort of rolling farmland with patches of... As I make my way out of Waiuku towards Glenbrook Steel Mill for the first time, you know, just I run through what it all New means, Zealand. and it's really sending me round in circles. Here, I'm really getting an understanding of what Dave Glossop, Tracy, Stephen and Debbie have been battling with all these years. Nothing makes sense. Like Dave said, there's nothing you can hang your hat on and really anchor a case around. But for me, if there's one thing today's interview helped me understand better, that's that it seems there is no doubt that Jim's hard hat was planted in the location it was found days after Jim's disappearance. So it's starting to look like the hard hat really is the smoking gun of this case. But the answer to this one question only opens the door to other far more important ones. Why was it planted? And who by? And how did whoever planted it evade being seen? These are all questions I'm going to try and answer. Because the reality is, if I can find the answer to these three questions, then I can find Jim. Guilt is written, produced, and edited by me, Ryan Wolfe. The title track is Nuclear Conception by Alison Winter. For further photos and video related to this episode, you can find a companion post on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, or our Facebook page, Brevity Studios NZ. For ad-free listening and bonus content, you can subscribe for the price of a coffee on Apple Plus under our Brevity Studios channel. You can also find further information on our website, theguiltpodcast.com. If you have any information related to the disappearance of Jim Donnelly or the subsequent search at the mill, you can contact us anonymously at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com on the next episode of Guilt. I don't know if I can walk down. Actually, I might walk down this bit. See if I can get a bit closer. Obviously, security's pretty tight these days. Oh, yeah, I can see a bit more. Oh, right, so I can see, actually, hundreds of coils which I imagine are, um, well, hundreds of coils. Wow. Um, but no, I, I remember it was probably probably a month after that um, I heard that a um, French sailor sailed into Waiuku, which is, um, you know, we pretty much have to know what you're doing to sail in there because it's um, all dry at low tide. But anyway, he came in there and he was looking for someone to uh, join him on his boat. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.